Our reading today is from Exodus 16, verses 2 through 5 and 13 through 21. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them, whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, They said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, an omer to a person according to the number of persons, and all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much and had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, as much as each needed. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church, and it's lovely to see all of your wonderful faces this morning. And we're in the middle of a series called Talking with God about the Lord's Prayer the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And we've been going through line by line, trying to understand what is so radical and fundamental about this way of talking with God. We've talked about uh, our God in heaven as it is uh, on earth, uh, uh, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've talked about um, God as our universal parent and destroying social hierarchy. We've talked about all of these big lofty things like kingdom and what it means to be talking about the kingdom of God. So today we're doing something a little more tangible, daily bread. And it's a beautiful sentiment, daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Does anybody have any associations with that? What do you think of when I say, give us today our daily bread? Shout it out. Well-being? Communion? High school cafeteria? We may have to talk more about that later. What's over here? Just enough? Yeah, it's a beautiful sentiment, and there's a sort of humility to it. It's, it seems a little less lofty than the others. All this big kingdom talk, and on earth as it is in heaven, and God our universal parent coming to level all of these structures. And you know what? Like, just for today, can we have just our daily bread today? It feels like a real scaling down in some ways. I'm terrible at this one. 
This seems like an easier part of the prayer, right? Like, oh God, just give me today my daily bread. Give us our daily bread. And it seems like an easier thing to pray in earnest, but I will tell you this, I, this is the, I'm the worst at this part of the prayer. Now, I want to backtrack because I've told you before there's no wrong way to pray and you can't be bad at prayer, and that still stands. And simultaneously, I suck at this. <laughs> Daily bread is tough for me. I am a planner. And I'm not like a detailed, organized planner. I'm not, don't ask me to be, you know, your wedding planner. It's going to go badly. Um, details are not my thing, but I'm a strategist. I'm a planner and a strategist. And in some ways, I'm more like an escape artist, which is to say that I always have a backup plan. I always have some contingency plan, some exit plan. I will not be caught unawares. Now, I'm a risk taker. It's a huge part of who I am, and I do a lot of things that other people wouldn't want to do. At my best, it's actually true that I'm trusting of God, that I think, you know what, we're going to get through this. Something good will come of this. I can enter into this dark night and see what God has in store for me in the beautiful mystery. But I'm not always at my best, <laughs> and so I'm not always like that. And this whole endeavor of church planting has been a real, real display of the wide range of my ability to pray, give me my daily bread, provide for us our daily bread, and simultaneously believe and not believe it. You see, I was called to church plant, and I know this. I think God sometimes has to be extra clear with me because there's a lot going on in my life and I'm prone to just sort of take these risks. I need to know exactly where God is asking me to go. And so God is really clear. God gives me a lot of clarity, a lot of people in my life with incredible wisdom, a lot of time with scripture to discern. And so it had become very, very clear to me that God was calling me into church planting. Now for me, that meant a lot of things. It meant quitting the job that I loved as a community organizer, going back to school and taking on a bunch more student debt. Eventually, it meant leaving the city of my home, Chicago, and coming to a new city with almost no contacts to start a project that was statistically doomed to fail. Zao is what is known as a parachute plant. And that, that image, the parachute, is of a little church planter dropping in from the sky, out of nowhere, into a community in which they have no existing relationship and connections. It's called a parachute plant because that's, that's the nature of it. It's also called a parachute plan, kind of plant derisively, because it's a really bad idea. <laughs> like, you just shouldn't do it. The right way to start a church is in a community in which you have deep relationship and roots. What is community except a network of loving relationship? So why would you uproot yourself from the relationships you have, go somewhere where you don't have any of that, and start some of the deepest, most profound relationships of your life professionally? You just shouldn't. It's a bad idea. And all of the church planting literature tells you to not do that. And I did it anyway, because that's clearly what God was calling me to do. And so I would sit with God, and I'd sit with these statistics, and I'd say, God, this is a terrible idea. And God would indicate to me in any number of ways, like, yes, it is, go forth. 90% <laughs> failure rate within seven years, parachute plants. And so I did it. I took this risk, but I was terrified. 
And in those good moments when I trusted God and I trusted God's call and I thought God has called me into this, in my best moments, I could actually see the whole scope of things. The, the future wherein Zao would flourish and would impact lives, but also the future in which Zao would never take off and something else would happen and it would be okay. And I would have fulfilled God's call in my heart and my life and God would make good and beauty out of it. In my best, I could see that whole spread. But I am not always at my best. And so, in those first days of church planting, I would lie awake at night. You see, we were promised three years of funding before I got here. Within two weeks of me getting here, the person who promised that funding had been fired for misconduct. (laughs) We were given funding for one year, but that funding was significantly less than what I had been promised, and there was no promise of future years. And so I started to panic. How were we going to survive? Church plants don't become self-sustaining overnight. We're still not completely self-sustaining. It's something that we work towards. So how were we going to survive? And I would lay awake at night, and I would think, and I would worry, and I would come to these conclusions like, but what if I became a diagnostic medical sonographer? I started contingency planning hard. I was like, okay, so two years of additional schooling, I'd have to take a couple of prerequisites because my background's in liberal arts. Um, But if I get this, you know, and then there's like the medical field is always like relatively stable and I could do these things. I was so worried about my own well-being that I was like, this church planting thing is not gonna fail. I'm not gonna be okay. I'm gonna die in a ditch unless I get a degree as a diagnostic medical sonographer. And if it sounds really specific, it's because it is. I did a lot of research, y'all. That seems like a great path. I highly recommend, based on my random 3 a.m. internet searchings. Diagnostic medical sonographer was not my only thought. I was like, okay, well, I've worked at Starbucks. Starbucks has good benefits. It's been 12 years since I worked there, but, you know, they'd probably take me back. I I went to the Apple store to, like, get a repair on my phone, and the Apple uh, Genius Bar person was like, hey, like, I like your style. I think you'd fit in here. And I was like, Apple will have me. (laughs) I was like, you know, cycling through all of these jobs. Now, I'm sure that you've come to the same conclusion that I did, that all of this made me an excellent church planter. All of my panic all of my sleepless nights, all of my planning, my scheming about every other job that I could have that would have my back, that would hold me up in this safety net, made me an excellent church planter. It did not. That is not how it panned out for me at all. In fact, it was an enormous distraction. It was a distraction from my work, from my sleep, from my well-being, from my prayer. I was not trusting in God at all. My anxiety had absolutely gotten the best of me. And so when I was church planting, when I was beginning this endeavor, this one of the most enjoyable pro- like, projects of my entire life, being involved with you all is the most satisfying thing that I've done in so many ways. And yet at the very beginning, instead of showing up to the birth of this community and being fully in, I showed up and I would go and 80% of my brain would be at the bar or at the baseball game or at the fire spinning event where I was trying to randomly meet strangers and see if any of them liked Jesus. (laughs) It was a weird time. But 20% of my brain was always in panic survival mode. 
how do I make it through this? What was crazy about all of that, what was not helpful about all of that, what didn't make sense about any of that, was that I actually was fully provided for for that entire year. That had already been promised and dispersed. Not only had I gotten my daily bread, I had gotten my yearly bread. Zhao was going to be okay through that calendar year financially. And yet I wasn't able to fully show up for it because what about the next year? When we talk about daily bread, we're talking about a lot. We're talking about material provision. We're talking about our culture of accumulation and scarcity and panic. We're talking about generosity and we're talking about our own deepest fears and anxieties. My panic was not warranted. And not only was it not warranted because eventually more funding did come through when we were able to figure it out, but my panic wasn't warranted because God had called me into something and God has actually never let me down. Now, if you're thinking right now, oh, Jonah must be nice. God has never let you down. I don't mean to say that nothing terrible has ever happened in my life. I've experienced some horrific things and some trauma that has shaped me to this day. I've experienced loss and suffering. And so when I say God hasn't let me down, what I don't mean is God has never let me suffer. God has never let me fail. God has never let terrible things happen to me. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is that God has never abandoned me. And I've never not come through it. Because I think that for me, that fear, that panic, that daily bread worry, on the surface, it's about what it's about. It's about funding for Zhao, or if you're going to get that job, or if you're going to make it through your school, your degree program, or if you're going to ever get a date again. But underneath it is a deeper, more existential fear. And that fear isn't really of suffering, it's of annihilation. It's of death. It's of saying something will be so bad, it will be the end of me. I won't make it. And anxiety is actually worrying that something ultimately will destroy us, that we won't be okay. Does that panic help us show up to the world? Does that panic help us show up to the people around us, to the life that God has given us, to the abundance we're showered with? No. No, it doesn't. In fact, it pulls us away, drags us down deep into ourselves, into our place of fear. Scripture tells us perfect love casts out fear. And yet that fear calls us in, calls us inward, away from love and risk and joy and hope. And often, that fear isn't about right now. That fear is about tomorrow. God had called me into church planting. God didn't guarantee its success. But God had called me in saying, go, Go forth into this risky endeavor. Go and trust 
Trust that I am with you. Trust that there will be enough. Trust that you are okay. And I had never given any thought to just being present to the church planting moment right then and there. To saying, it is what it is right now. How can I be fully alive to it right now? And trust that what needs to come will come, even if that's not what I would expect, what I would plan. Even if thou doesn't turn into the thing that I would want or doesn't turn into anything at all. But that prayer of give us today our daily bread is a prayer of presence and wholeness. It's a prayer of being alive now. It's a prayer of trust that now is enough. And that is incredibly countercultural. We think that this kingdom language is countercultural, that God as the universal parent is countercultural. This is countercultural in a culture of capitalism and scarcity that says you will never have enough. Store up more, accumulate more. You'll feel better when there's more in your bank account. You'll feel better when you have a plan. You'll feel better when you have everything mapped out. Does it ever work? No. That dread, that existential dread that says I won't be okay tomorrow only grows as we feed it. The scripture today is one of my favorites. It's in Exodus. And God has been with God's people through horrific events. They have been enslaved for generations in Egypt. God has seen them through horrors. And God has led them out through Moses, out of Egypt and into the desert. And in response to this, do the people say, our God is amazing. We trust God forever. We will know in our hearts that we will be okay. We take this victory as evidence that all will be made right one day, that we can survive this. Is that what they do? Absolutely not. They get into the desert and they're like, we should have died back in Egypt. This sucks. <laughs> Where's our food going to come from? They literally say, at least when we were slaves, we knew where our next meal was coming from. Take us back or let us die there instead of dying out here. The weather's worse. So they're in the desert, in the wilderness, and they feel like God has abandoned them. After God has done miraculous things, parted the seas. They've seen the seas part. They've walked through the sea. And they're like, yeah, God's probably done caring about us. God probably led us here just to die. And if that seems narrow or short-sighted or how could they forget so quickly, I would like to admit to you that that has been me every day of my life. I praise God in one moment, recognizing God's incredible provision, recognizing the way that God moves through this broken world, shows up, showers us with love, and then the next moment when I'm no longer focused on the present and what is here, when I'm focused on tomorrow and my worries and my fears, I'm like, yep, God's probably abandoned us. This is the human condition, y'all. When Jesus taught us to pray this way, it's because Jesus knows our hearts, knows our battles, knows our fears, knows that pit inside of us that tries to draw us back in saying, what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? 
what about tomorrow? And so one of many tools we have to draw us back into the present and into love is this story. God's people in the wilderness, scared, running, afraid of starvation, saying, where is our next meal going to come from? So we see this glimpse of a conversation between Moses and God, where God's like, all right, Moses, I got a plan. We'll see how they do. I'm going to give you food every day. Every day it's going to appear miraculously. Every day. I want people to just take what they need every day and trust that it's coming back tomorrow. Every day. Okay? And how did they do? Not so good. Yeah, they did as most of us would probably do in that situation. They're scared, they're running, they don't know what their future holds. And so this, this manna from heaven comes down. Anybody know that term, manna? It's a unique term to this story. It's, it's described as this kind of like spongy, wafery, it, it sounds kind of gross, honestly, but it's food. It's very clearly edible. And actually, God provides more than just this bread. God provides quails at night. It's, their quails aren't just coming to like give a little you know, bird show. They're actually dead. Um, they're to be eaten. So in the desert, all of a sudden, there are these quails for dinner. And in the morning, there's this bread, this weird, spongy, magic, from heaven, miraculous bread in the desert. And so what do people do? They gather up as much of it as they can. Despite what they've been told, they say, okay, take all you can. We have no idea where our next meal is coming from. Moses just told them where their next meal is coming from, but they're like, we don't know. It might not come. It's the desert. This is terrible. What about tomorrow? You know, store it up. So they gather and hoard, and they put it in sacks. And overnight, it rots. It turns foul. And God is like, guys, we had this talk. It's going to be there the next day. And this story kind of goes on. There's this exchange because there's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is coming up. Sabbath is a day you're not supposed to work. And so on the day before the Sabbath, God provides double the amount of bread. So people take double the amount of bread, and it doesn't spoil overnight. But then on the Sabbath, there's no bread, and people are like, why is there no bread? And the answer is because God provided the day's bread the day before so that they could just rest. But do they want to rest? Are they prepared to rest? Are they at peace enough to rest on the Sabbath saying, we have enough? No, they're terrified. They're panicked. That void inside of them is calling, saying, what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? God has given us this story as a reminder that we are not alone in our void of panic, but also as an invitation to move, to move from that place into a place of trust, into understanding the nature of God, who does provide, who longs to provide. It is our God's good pleasure to give us what we need, the scriptures say. And God does that, but not in the ways that our culture demands. You see, our 
consumptive, capitalist culture says you will never have enough because there is no so much, such thing as enough. So the closest you can get is having the most. The most compared to others, the most possible. Just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And the scriptures are actually really clear on how wrong this is. Now, this is like pre-capitalism as we know it, and yet it's still a pretty sick burn on capitalism, the way that, that Jesus just goes over and over being like, no, 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 to hoarding, to storing up treasures. There are so many stories about it. Jesus is like, hey, don't store up treasures on earth. Treasures in heaven, not on earth. On earth, they rot. It's really bad. Jesus is like, hey, there was a rich guy. He was kind of dumb. <laughs> he kept a lot of stuff. He put them in bins. People were like, what are you doing with all that stuff? He made more bins. He put more of his, bin, his stuff in bins. Then he died. Bummer. <laughs> That's Jesus on capitalism before capitalism existed. And there is this consistency of the scripture saying that like our, our food, our riches, our wealth will rot. This is not just a metaphor that shows up with manna in the desert. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. In James, the letter uh, to the church from J in Jerusalem from James uh, there is this real tear that, that the author goes on. Um, it starts with, woe to you who are rich. And it's talking about wealth gap and disparity. But it's taking down this culture of accumulation. And the author writes, your riches have rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted. And their rust will be evidence against you. It will eat up your flesh like fire. Now, we know that gold and silver don't rust. That's actually part of their appeal. The author's point here is that the things of this earth that we hold so sacred are actually truly not worth anything. And when they turn rotten, it's not those items that turn rotten. It is the holders of those items. This, this passage, and sometimes it's translated as, well, your gold and silver will testify against you in the court of the Lord. And it goes on to talk about the exploitation of workers. That the accumulation of wealth is evidence of wrongdoing. That if we have so much for tomorrow and the tomorrows to come, it is proof that we're missing the point. That we've gotten something wrong. And in the case of the church in Jerusalem, the evidence of that and the way that it bears out is that there's extreme wealth disparity in that community. That there are some who have enough for many tomorrows and some who fear they don't even have enough for today. And that's one of the real rubs here because when I stand up here and say, give us today our daily bread and isn't it so great that we trust in God's provision, we have to contend with the very real fact that not everyone has what they need. That is real. That is real in our world. That is real in our pews. There are people in our community today who are experiencing vastly different uh, experiences of wealth, experiences of provision, if you, are the only, if you 
fear that you are the only person in the room today that can't make their bills this month, I guarantee you, you are not the only one. And if you are worried that you are the only one in this room that has enough but feels terrified that you don't have enough, I guarantee you, you're not the only one in the room today. And this difference, this reality that some of us actually don't have enough, that some people are being denied their basic needs, is precisely the nature of this call out from God. That's the reason we're not supposed to hoard things. Because when we have enough, when there is enough, and science tells us this, we actually know that there's enough uh, material wealth on this planet for all human beings to flourish. That, that's a study that I know of well that's related to people. My guess is that there are other studies that talk about how we could have everything we need and not destroy the planet around us and care for all of God's creation. We know that there is enough. So why do some not have enough? It's because too many of us are that rich fool that Jesus is talking about with the storing of the grains in our barns and just building bigger and bigger and bigger silos for tomorrows that will never come. We know that there are people in our world who have well more than they could possibly consume in a lifetime. That is why there are people in our world who don't have enough to get through today. Give us our daily bread is an indictment of everything that is stored up for tomorrow and every system that demands or expects that we are only okay if we have enough in store for later. Consumption and accumulation, these things are anti-gospel. So what do we do in a world that is built anti-gospel? We are invited in again to this counterculture. We are invited into both trust and generosity. For most of us, there is some sort of mixture of excess and scarcity. What are the things of which you have plenty that you and all creation would be better off if you would stop storing them up but offer them back? What are the places where you experience scarcity that you need to entrust to God and to the community to be met? That parable of the foolish rich man, St. Augustine said, the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. If we have enough for today, that is enough. Give us today our daily bread. Is a call for us to let go of everything beyond today. We will live in this tension of already and not yet. We live in the world's economy as we strive towards God's economy. I'm not telling you that you're wrong for having health insurance or a retirement plan if you are lucky enough to have those things or strive toward them. But we need our spirits as well as our material wealth to be oriented towards abundance. 
that everything has been provided, that there is enough for all if only we would all trust and buy into this. And we need to stop feeding that void inside of us that tells us, what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? The antidote, according to scripture, is prayer. Philippians says, do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This passage doesn't tell us that if we come to God with all of our lists of worries and wants and desires, that God will grant them like some sort of weird cosmic genie. Instead, we are invited to do something else with our needs. That instead of worrying and ruminating and filling ourselves with anxiety about tomorrow, 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 to come to God instead. And to bring everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, bring our humility and our gratitude to God and let our requests be made known. Let our needs be made known. And that God will give us not a laundry list of our desires, but first and foremost and always, peace. The peace which passes all understanding. I gotta tell you, for me, this is a big indicator of whether I'm praying or just turning my anxiety into a mantra. When I lie awake at night, if I am truly coming to God with prayer, with my requests, with my desires, the peace of God is with me somehow. But if I am just sitting there listing, what about tomorrow, what about tomorrow, what about tomorrow? I've missed the point and I'm no longer praying I'm trying to turn my anxiety itself into a prayer. Jesus urges us not to worry, reminds us that worry actually takes us out of the kingdom, takes us out of relationship to now, to one another, to being fully alive. He tells his people this beautiful extended metaphor, a metaphor so powerful in my life that I have it tattooed onto my body to try every day newly to remember. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will God not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the faithless who strive for all these things. 
And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And this is my favorite part, the way Jesus ends this teaching. He says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. In this analogy, this extended imagery, metaphor that Jesus gives us for why we ought not worry and what God's provision really means, Jesus emphasizes that God knows our needs, that our needs themselves are not frivolous, that we do need to eat and drink and be clothed. God knows that your longing for security and safety is real. And God wants those things for you. When you look at your bank account and worry, when you look around your life and feel lonely and are worried, when you move through the world wondering if you will have enough and are worried, it is not that God doesn't want you to have the things you need. It is only that God sees the worry gnawing at your gut and says, stop. Stop. It is your God's good pleasure to give you what you need. Take what you need today. And so, it is a radical prayer when we say, give us today our daily bread. It is a prayer of trust. It is an invitation into generosity. And in those ways, this prayer is revolutionary. Will you pray with me? God of today and of all the todays, God help us. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need in this moment. And God, what we need in this moment is trust. Trust in your goodness. Trust in your vastness. Trust in your generosity. God, you know what we need. Better than we do, in fact. And so, God, we ask for your daily bread, for your provision. And God, as we ask, we repent. We repent of those treasures we have stored up on this earth. We repent of our fear which has driven us into that gnawing place of what about tomorrow. We repent of the ways that we have robbed other family members, other parts of creation of their daily bread because we wanted bread for tomorrow. We repent. We ask your forgiveness. And we ask that you would give us the hope to be generous, the trust to be open and the strength to pray every day. Give us today our daily bread. Amen.